Well, let's turn together to John chapter 7 and a passage we read a moment ago. It's the end, really, of a whole section in which Jesus has been interacting with people. And during that section of uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, there's been lots of conversation about who he is. And he has been making some astounding claims for himself. And there's a huge lesson to learn from this last little section here. It would be very easy just to glide over it. It's a record of people's response to him. But we're not going to glide over it. We're going to pause on it this evening. Uh, It has to do particularly with people's response to his proclamation. He had gotten up at the great Feast of the Tabernacles, and he had made a public statement. He had actually proclaimed a message to the people. And he was the message. He was talking about himself. And it was that proclamation about himself that leads to a a schism amongst the people. And uh, the key word, really, in this whole section is that there was a division, a division amongst the people because of him. And it teaches us more. It teaches us that the, the open opposition that is growing against him, the open hostility of the authorities towards him, Uh, is contrasted with a kind of groundswell among ordinary people of interest in him. And it's the interest in him that is provoking the authorities to take a harder and harder line about him. The fact that his influence is growing in the the minds and hearts of ordinary people is threatening to the authorities. And so we found last time that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, were galvanized in their opposition Uh, They're determined now that they must get rid of Jesus, that they must kill him. They're seeking to kill him. The text has already explained that. And uh, while they are planning and plotting to get rid of him, we find as we come to this text this evening that there is a kind of mental division amongst the people. People are, are going down avenues of thought, trying to put Jesus into some kind of framework in their heads. How does he fit? How does... Jesus, what he is doing, the, the miracles he's performing, the obvious supernatural things that he does, the, these dramatic actions of his by getting up at the Feast of the Tabernacle at the most silent moment when everybody's attention is focused and breaking the silence by his bold proclamation about himself. People are wondering, how do we take him? What do we do with him? Maybe you're here this evening and you're, you're wondering, what do we do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? Well, this passage helps us because as people are listening to him, we find that people are beginning to make up their minds about him. And maybe you haven't. Maybe you're still undecided. Maybe you're sitting on the proverbial fence. You're still trying to put a category in your head in which you can place Jesus. Well, this passage will help you, I think. And... As we come to the passage, I think I want to point out that it's my opinion that the key verse, the focus really of the whole passage, is in verse 46. It's a phrase. No one ever spoke like this man. Imagine my horror when I was walking to church during the week, got off the train, walking down 17th Street, and I see a sign facing me on the corner of Spruce and 17th with my name on it. And underneath the words, no one 
ever spoke like this man. It made the elders laugh on Saturday. I thought it might make you laugh too. Anyway, that aside, just to clear away, in case anybody came under false pretenses tonight, we just clear that away. That is the key, really, though, to this entire section. And so tonight, with a little bit of help from some friends, John Piper, Bono, and C.S. Lewis, I'm going to help us to look at the portrait of Jesus that is in the gospel so offensive and so compelling to all of us. And I hope that it will help you too. The, the action really centers around three groups. First of all, there's the crowd. The crowd's question. The crowd's question is, could this be the Messiah? Verses 40 to 44. Here again, we see the division beginning to take place. There's a division amongst these ordinary people. Some of them think he is the prophet. Verse 40. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Probably referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses talked about the fact that in the last days, in the latter days, God would raise up a prophet like him with the kind of authority and status that Moses had. And uh, I think the people are putting together several things. They're putting together the remarkable miracles that Jesus performed. Moses had fed the multitude in the desert. Jesus fed the multitude on the mountain. Moses had struck a rock and provided water. Jesus had just been saying, hadn't he, that if you came to him, he would give you the water of life. And in their minds, they're putting these things together, and they're thinking of the first Redeemer, Moses, who brought them out of Egypt, and they're thinking about the second Redeemer, the prophet who was to come. And they're putting two and two together, and they're th saying to themselves, this Jesus, this re Jesus looks as if he qualifies to be the second Redeemer, someone like Moses. Perhaps he's the prophet. Others in the crowd thought he was the Messiah. Look at verse 41. Others said, this is the Messiah, the long-awaited, much-expected, often-promised Messiah of the Jewish people. This is the one, they thought to themselves. And they were linking the prophet and what the people had been saying about Jesus as a prophet. They're linking that with the expectation of an anointed one who would come, who would be a king to rule the people. And they thought perhaps these two things perhaps merge together. And what it does is actually underlines the confusion and the people's thinking, the division among the people about Jesus. And then there was a third category, and they thought that he was an imposter. Look at verses 41 and 42. These others didn't see how he could be the Messiah. Oh, he's, he doesn't qualify. They, as far as they were concerned, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, Galilee, there were nothing. There was nothing in the Bible promised about Galilee. Certainly the Messiah was not to be born there. And, and so we read this. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Is the Messiah to come from there? Has not the Scripture said that the Messiah comes from the offspring of David? Comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So what are they doing? They're judging Jesus by appearance. And they're writing Jesus off because he did not fulfill this qualification as far as they knew. Interestingly, 
neither John nor Jesus clarify or corrects them at this point. It's a bit ironic, and John, who knows that the people he's writing to already have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we all know the story. We all know that he was born in Bethlehem. They've got it wrong. They haven't done their research well enough. Luke had done his research, and was, there was absolutely no doubt that he was born in Bethlehem. John doesn't even bother going down that rabbit hole of explaining that, because I think John is far more concerned that we understand who Jesus is before Bethlehem. He's far more concerned that we understand Jesus to be the Son of Man of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. This heavenly figure who comes from heaven and who is described in spite of being a heavenly being is, is also described as being a son of Adam. A heavenless being who, who combines both heavenly being and earthly Adam figure, combines them in one person. John's more concerned that we get that idea of Jesus in our heads. And so he bypasses, in a sense, Bethlehem, and he goes straight to the throne from which Christ has come. And now unto the earth, where he is as on the Father's mission. And so he doesn't go into an explanation. But verse 43, 44, verse 44 tell, sums it up for us. There was a division among the people because of him. A division among the people because of him. Jesus divides people. One of the great world religions which dominates in the Middle East is divided with the rest of the world over its view of Jesus. Jesus divides people. And still today, people are, even in our culture, divided over him. It happened that way in Jesus' lifetime on earth. It keeps happening wherever he is presented faithfully today. And I only pray that tonight you don't find yourself on the wrong side of the division. What is Jesus? Is he prophet, the Christ, or an imposter? That was the crowd's question. Could he be the Messiah? Then there is, secondly, the officer's report. The officer's report is that no one speaks like Jesus. Look at verse 45. There have been attempts already to arrest Jesus. They won't be able to do that, actually, for another six months. But they've tried, and they have failed. And they'll keep failing until it's the right time. That's what John reminds us over and over again. Jesus has a time. That time was fixed by his Father in heaven. Nothing can be done to him until that time comes. So they've gone and they've looked for him. They've gone and they've found him, but they've not been able to arrest him. They've come back empty-handed. No one laid hands on him is a recurring statement in the story. No one laid hands on him. And so the officers then come to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Here we come to the hinged text of the whole passage. And there's a double division in the text. Do you notice that? Verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Of all the things they could have said, 
They could have explained, don't you understand that Jerusalem is in a volatile situation right now and frankly it might cause a riot or it might, there might be a mass movement of people in his favor and, and certainly it wouldn't look good for us to be going and arresting Jesus right in the middle of a holy feast. That might look bad. They could have talked about the volatile situation. They could have argued that there might be a riot. No, they don't come up with any of those excuses. They don't cover up the fact this is what really caused the fact, them not to arrest Jesus. We wondered that, didn't we? If you were here last time when we were looking earlier on in this chapter, and uh, we heard that they had dispatched these officers, this small army, to arrest Jesus, and we wondered why it was they weren't able to arrest him. Now they tell us. Here is the answer. No one ever spoke like this man. What are they saying to you? They're saying to you that the word of Jesus was too strong for them to arrest him. A little later on in John's gospel, John will record the night the soldiers finally came to arrest him. And when they approached him, we estimate up to nearly a thousand men between the various groups that were involved in that arresting group. A thousand to one. And when they approach Jesus in the garden, and they say, are you he? Jesus replies, and he doesn't say very much. He only says, I am. And those men fall back in each other. It's like skittles bouncing each other back as, as they collapse before him. The power of his word fells them. They cannot do anything until he voluntarily surrenders himself into their hands because his time has come. These men who came earlier looking for Jesus experienced the same power of his word. It was too strong for them to arrest him. They recognized that when they heard Jesus speaking, they were listening to a power, they were engaging with a power greater than could be attributed to any human being. A power for which they as ordinary people had no way of explanation or words. And that's the point of the text. Jesus is in the world. Jesus is speaking. Jesus saying things causes division among people. We saw the first division, the crowds have splintered into three groups and three views about Jesus. Now the second division. This time it's defined by the Pharisees as we listen to the third part of this passage. The crowds question, could he be the Messiah? The officers report, no one speaks like this man. And now the Pharisees' diagnosis. Wait for it. The Pharisees' diagnosis. Everyone is wrong. Everyone is wrong. Do you notice how they put it? Let's break it down. First of all, they say the officers are deceived. Verses 47 and 48. The Pharisees answered them, that is, the empty-handed officers, have you also been deceived? Why are they saying that? Well, they're saying that because they're recognizing what the officers are actually telling them about their experience of going to arrest Jesus. Their experience is Jesus is untouchable. Jesus is 
invincible. They are scared of him. They are in awe of him. He is out of their power. And the Pharisees, when they hear these men saying this, when they see it on their faces, are in total contempt of these men. And they try to explain it away as some kind of deception. They use that language. The people have been led astray by Jesus. And the emphasis there is on how despicable it is for them to allow themselves to be led astray by Jesus. And here's their argument. Notice this. Here is their argument. You'll hear this kind of argument in different contexts over and over again. Here's their argument. Listen. You're just officers in the army. Has anybody who knows anything about anything have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Do brain surgeons believe in him? Do rocket scientists believe in him? Do major celebrities believe in him? Who believes in him? There really isn't a position of expertise to say. That, that was their question, wasn't it? You get it over and over again. And the Pharisees are contemptuous. This is their clinching argument. Do you know of any of us boys here who believe in him? You're listening to the masses and you're not looking to the models of authority and edu education and erudition. So the officers are deceived. This is what the Pharisees say. The crowds are cursed. Verse 49. This crowd, the people who are making all these assumptions and, you know, speculations, this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. The crowds are in confusion about Jesus because they don't know the law. They're not experts. They don't know the law the way we know the law. Therefore, they're under God's curse. Now, this is an astonishing thing for them to say. They're actually writing off the entire populace. The crowd, literally, the crowd means, the word means, the people of the land. The people, generally. And they're saying about these people that these ordinary people, because they're ordinary people, of course, own, don't have the knowledge of the law. Not only that, but they don't have the respect, the proper respect for the lawful authorities. That leaves them vulnerable to all sorts of popular teachers for whom they are easy pickings. And because of that, not only are they distanced from the rightful people they should be listening to, but they're distanced from God Himself, and therefore they are under the curse. Do you know the language is so strong? It is, it's incredible that they should have used this. It's such hostile language about the very people that they are the leaders of, that they are the carers of, that they are the guides of. And they're accusing others of being under a curse, and they're putting themselves forward as we're the people who know, and we're the people who are not cursed, because we're the people who get the law right. 
So the officers are deceived. The crowds are cursed. And then there's this character, Nicodemus, who comes onto the stage. He's one of them. We're told that very clearly. He's one of them. He belongs to the Pharisees. He was one of them. And uh, Nicodemus speaks up, and their reaction to Nicodemus is that he is blinded by his bias. He speaks up. Now, you need to understand that at this point, we're not told very much about Nicodemus's own personal faith. I don't think at this point that he is speaking up as a confessor of Jesus or as a defender of Jesus, but he is speaking up as a thoroughgoing, consistent, non-hypocritical Pharisee. He is speaking as a defender of the law. And it's as a defender of the law that he gives a word of caution. Now, I think you probably know a Nicodemus type of person. In one of the churches I was in, we we had an associate pastor, dear, dear friend of mine, and uh, we, we all at staff meetings used to joke that whenever, whenever we had a debate about something, there would be me, and I would, of course, take the extreme view and tell them what I really thought about I'm not very good at holding back and not telling people what I really think about things. And I would, I would express my view with the usual you know, quietness and timidity, as I usually have. And, uh, and then it would go around the room, and I'd provoke certain people, and there was always some buttons that I would press, and... And we had a great time. But always you could be sure, you could always be sure, that eventually he would speak. He always left it till the end. And his words for which he was known as his middle name, his words were always, to be fair. Well, to be fair. And then he would give the exact opposite perspective from what I'd said, which was the right thing, of course. He'd give the exact opposite perspective. And he would get us all thinking and Mr. To be fair. Nicodemus was like that. And to be fair, it's good to have someone like that on a team. It's always good to have someone like that. Because they make you think. And that's what Nicodemus is doing here. He is making them think about what they're they're saying and what they're doing. He's giving an alternative explanation. So what does Nick say? He says, verse 51, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And I want you to notice this man is not only theoretical. He's quoting the law, yes. That law is the very law that bound the Pharisees together. They're all, they've all pledged allegiance to the law. It's like our session having pledged to uphold the confession and the catechisms of our church. They're all pledged to keep the law of God. But this man is not only talking about his pledge, this man has actually done it. Do you notice what John adds? He had gone to Jesus before and was one of them. Here he is now pleading that justice be done with Jesus according to the law. And he had followed his own advice. He had gone to Jesus himself to find out exactly what Jesus was saying. To listen closely to what Jesus was teaching. He wasn't prepared to take it second or third hand, or simply to be part of the Mass. He had questions that he wanted to ask, and he'd gone to Jesus with those questions. He'd gone to Jesus before judging. 
And I think I wonder whether, to be fair, Nicodemus wanted Jesus to have a fair chance, a fair hearing. He wanted them to explore the possibility that maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus might be who he said he was. And that's a good place to be. If you're in that place where you're prepared, as Nicodemus was, to investigate, to explore what Christianity is about, that's a good place to be. And we try to provide opportunities for you to do that here at our church. And so he gives a word of caution. And it's to this word of justice and caution that his fellow Pharisees respond. And what do they do? They accuse him of being biased. They're annoyed at him. And so they give him a put-down. That's what their words are. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. No hint that they're open to know the facts before they condemn Jesus. They're saying, in essence, the only reason you would want to give him the kind of chance that you're talking about is that you belong to his part of the country. He's part of your clan. You, you, you know people that know him, and so therefore you've got your constituency to consider. That's what they're doing. And without mentioning Jesus by name, they sarcastically urge Nicodemus to check the Bible for himself and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. In fact, they make a play on Jesus' own words to them. Jesus had said to them, Search the Scriptures, because in them uh, that you will find that they bear witness to me. Now they're using Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Search the Scriptures, and you will see no prophet is to arise from Galilee. And they're using Jesus' own words. They're using Holy Spirit words through Jesus, against Jesus. And that's the unpardonable sin. Now, it's here that John Piper's comment is so valuable. Let me read it to you. The officers are blinded by deception. The crowds are blinded by a curse. Nicodemus is blinded by his Galilean bias. But John means for us to see that, in fact, the tables are totally turned. All of these indictments are going to show the Pharisees themselves are really deceived and cursed and biased. So the key words you see in the section are, no one ever spoke like this man. That is the central assertion of the passage. And what made it, what made it their assertion? And the point that we have to return to again and again, what is it that makes him different? is his utter uniqueness. You know this idea of division. You'll find in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is only a sparkle in Mary's eye. This is what they said about him. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed. And Jesus, in Matthew 10, he says, do, you not think, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus, in his uniqueness, divides people. What did these empty-handed officers have in mind when they said that Jesus spoke like no one else? They'd heard him, they'd heard him just recently at the feast, stand up and say, 
If anyone is thirsty, that is, if anyone has real, basic, fundamental desires for satisfaction, come to me. Come to me. They'd heard him claim to come from his Father in heaven. They'd heard all of those things. They'd heard him put himself on an equal footing with God. They'd heard him teach the crowd, Moses fed you in the desert. I made the food that Moses fed them with. These are bold claims. No man ever spoke like this man. Now, in our day, people like Bart Ehrman have made the decision to ignore the trajectory of Jesus' claims, to even deny Jesus' claims altogether. In fact, he even goes as far as to say that the idea of monotheism really wasn't even established by this time, against which flies all the evidence of history. But when you come to the early Christians, when you come to the earliest documents we have, the earliest New Testament doctrines that precede the Gospels, that were the first things in writing that we have of the earliest Christians, what do you find? Thessalonians, probably. First Thessalonians is the first letter Paul wrote that we have to the church at Thessalonica. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the letters to the Galatians, which may come first or second, we don't, we don't know. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Michael Byrd, theologian, has written this. God the Father and the Lord Jesus go together like peanut butter and jelly, rock and roll, cheese and wine, baseball and beer. When early Christians mentioned God, they had to mention Jesus as well. When they mentioned Jesus, they had to mention God. They could not think of one without the other. It's like God was Jesified and Jesus was Godified. This is why some of the scholars have spoken of a, quote, Christological monotheism. The God of Israel is revealed in, through, and even as the Lord Jesus Christ. The basics. These early Christians believed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That there is only one Creator God, God alone, the Creator and Sustainer of all things. But they're quite prepared to say, as Paul says in one of the earliest New Testament documents, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's very early. Because from the earliest days, Christians recognized Jesus claims to be God. Prophet, Messiah, imposter, none of those things. God with skin on. Now to C.S. Lewis. You know this quotation, but he is particularly concerned that we get our understanding of Jesus wrong. 
Here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Unquote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can take him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, the way Jesus spoke, the things he said about himself, are irrational. Or they're just plain bad if he is not what he said he was. C.S. Lewis's fellow Irishman, Paul David Hewson, otherwise known as Bono, of the band U2, which none of you will have heard of because you're all very holy, has read, has read Lewis a lot and has been persuaded. And a few days after the Madrid terrorist bombing in 2004, Bono did an interview with a French journalist. And uh, when the subject of religion came up in, as the cause of terrorism, Bono turned the conversation to Christianity and the theme of grace. Bono said, it's, it's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. And the journalist replied and, say, and said, such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy in my view. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but Son of God, isn't that far-fetched? Listen to Bono's answer. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Messiah story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets like Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you to say that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says... No, I am saying, I am not saying I am a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric, but we've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey, and we can handle that. But please don't use the M word, because you know we're going to have to crucify you. He, Jesus says, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and saying, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is this, either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or he's a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have, its, uh, uh, could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, 
That's far-fetched. Well, I don't know where Bono Bono stands, but he has understood C.S. Lewis's argument. And he's understood the argument of these officers. No one ever spoke like this man. You know, the last thing those officers heard before they came back with this report were Jesus' words when he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. In other words, believing in Jesus means more than being persuaded that he is God. The devil actually is quite persuaded by both C.S. Lewis and Bono. Believing in Jesus means coming to him to drink. That is, if you and I, C.S. Lewis and Bono, are going to have eternal life, we must come to Jesus as our supreme, all-satisfying provider. Come to Jesus as the one water that quenches the thirst of my soul. Come to Jesus who sustains me with the bread of heaven. Come to Jesus who alone brings salvation and who alone gives eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would convince us this evening as we reflect on the responses of people then and now to your Son, that he is the only way to go, the only one to come to, the only life there is. We pray that you would bring us to life ourselves. In Jesus' strong name, amen.